And we are going to let these kids exit as they do their stunts off the stage. I don't blame them. It's a nice jump. And uh, go ahead and grab your Bibles. We are going to skip announcements videos today because there's really nothing much to announce. Um, the only thing I do want to make sure you saw scrolling on the slides is the night of biblical conversations that we were planning to have tonight. We are not planning to have that tonight. Okay, so make, I'm sorry if you had plans for that. We, we just thought it was prudent not to have that tonight. Okay, so that's, uh, that's that. Matthew chapter 5, because that's where we are. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. If you need a Bible, there's some on the chairs there around you, page 633. Or if the Bible has a flame, page 810. Page 810. Very familiar verses this morning. This entire sermon, as we've talked about, is very familiar. We call it the Sermon on the Mount oftentimes. In the Gospel of Matthew, there's two sermons that Matthew records that Jesus spoke in in a, in a lengthy kind of way, and that is this one, Matthew chapter 5 through 7, which is often called the Sermon on the Mount, because we talked about last week, he went onto a, a mountain, and there he instructed. And then uh, Matthew chapter 24 and 25, which is also known as the Olivet Discourse, because he was Mount of Olives, where he taught that. So what I said to you last week as we, we entered into the Sermon on the Mount is there is no shortage of discussion about what Jesus meant when he started teaching this, who he meant it for, what he intends with it. Um, you can find plenty of reading out there, plenty of perspectives. What I've always done with you when I preach is I bring to you what I think the scriptures are teaching based on my understanding and my study, prayerfully and humbly. And oftentimes I will say to you, and we don't have to agree on this, and so you go search this. So that's what I'm going to continue to do this morning. And as I did last week, I told you, my understanding of what Jesus is doing as the Messiah, the Word made flesh, is he's pointing people to his interpretation, his understanding of the instructions of God, of the Torah. He is, as a rabbi, as a teacher, he is explaining, this is the instruction of God. You've heard it, but here's my understanding of it as the very one who wrote it. Right? And then he is calling them higher based on what they've been instructed by those who would teach Moses' words and then live a certain way. He is instructing them, you've heard it said, but I say. He's not contradicting ever in, in this sermon what has previously been written. What he's going after is the teachers that have been modeling something very different, even though they teach the words of Moses. And so he says, you've heard it said, and he, what he refers to, and that's not in these verses this morning, by the way, but what he refers to when he says statements like that is, you've heard it said, you've heard it said by your teachers, but I'm saying to you, it's about this. And oftentimes those, those, um, those instructions are, you've heard it said that it, and he describes something that's outward, that's physical. And then he calls them back, but I say, and he points them to something that's inward and heart-based, right, first, because anything that is outward and physical is a reflection of the heart, and the heart must be changed first, it must be circumcised first, before then the obedience follows in righteousness, okay, so that's what he's doing in this sermon. Now, we talked about in Matthew, right before Matthew chapter 5, in, in uh, chapter 4, he, he had a bunch of people following him, and they're from all over the place, 
They're from north and south in Israel. They're from the Decapolis. You'll see that at the end of chapter 4. I think it's verse 25 is, uh, is where that is. Yep. And the Decapolis is 10 cities, 10 cities that in history had been giving, given over to Gentiles. And so there is a large Gentile um, population in there as well. So it's feasible to assume that Jesus has primarily Jewish listeners, but also some non-Jewish listeners. People that have been looking for the Messiah and, and are hoping and anticipating that it's him. People who have uh, cert- some levels of certainty, others who have maybe some levels of questions. There's other people who are gathered around him because he's been healing people, casting out demons. And so they're drawn to that kind of thing and they're coming now to listen to this one who has power to do this kind of thing. And so he's, he's likely got a mixed group, but this sermon that he's given, this instruction is his interpretation, his understanding of what we would call the Torah or the instruction of God. And he's then now helping them to understand that. So that's important to keep in mind who he's talking to because the pronouns matter. That's a relevant statement. I didn't mean to say like that. <laughs> they do matter too today. But, but the pronouns matter because when he says you, we need to understand that he's primarily speaking to an audience of Hebrews. He's primarily speaking to an audience of people who would have, who have, many of them would have had some basic education in what we would call our Old Testament. They, they were familiar with it. He was speaking to people who were looking for a Messiah. And, and what our tendency is, is our tendency is to read into you and forget that that might be his audience and then we, we lose some of what he's about to say. And if we fail to know who his audience is, then we start to impose on the text our own understanding based on our current context or our current understanding of things. And that's not how we study scripture. We study scripture first and foremost. What did it mean to the people it was written for? Who were they writing to? How would it have been understood? What was the background, the context, the historical context? What kind of words were used? And how would those words have been understood? We have to understand it in their context first, which takes work. And then we say, now what does that mean for me today, for us today? After I've done my work to understand, what does it mean for them then? Now how does that look for us now? Okay? I say all that because I know I'm about to put some very familiar verses in front of you. Here's where we're going this morning. Oh, my quotations didn't. I got them the wrong way. Sorry about that. Living salty lives is what makes believers in Jesus a light to the world. Okay? Living salty lives, I do understand the potential meaning for that today, intended. Living salty lives is what makes believers in Jesus a light. To the world. Let's take a look. I'm going to go ahead and just read through them. They're just, there's just a few verses, um, and because of that, I'm not going to follow it on the screen there because it's just the few verses, but 5.13 through 16 is what I'm reading. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 
Living salty lives is how believers in Jesus become a light to the world. So Jesus starts and he says, you, and keep in mind then the you there is, is the, the crowd that's before him, primarily going to be Hebrews, okay? That's why I, I hammered that just a moment ago, primarily Hebrews, okay? So then you are the salt of the earth. Let's start with salt for a moment. When we think about salt, our problem is most of us, unless we are crunchy, we um, use iodized salt. Did you capture that? Because I know many of you use Himalayan salt. I know many of you use some kind of rock salt or Celtic salt, right? That's crunchy is what I'm saying in like a granola sense, right? All right. So unless you are crunchy, you use, likely use iodized table salt. And that is not at all what's being talked about here. We are talking when Jesus says salt, they didn't process the salt like we process the salt today. The, the salt that they would have had would have been part of rocks and minerals, and, and it, would have been, it would have been so substantial. And he says, you are the salt of the earth, the, the type of salt that you would, you would pull out of the earth because it's part of the earth or the land. You're the salt. And salt in their day, not so much as in our day, had a great number of uses and value. Obviously, it was used to season food. That's the one we immediately go to because it fits our context. It was used to preserve food in a non-refrigerated context, right? And you would put it on meats, and, and, and it would uh, preserve the meats. It was used in sacrifices. It was used in sacrifices in order to draw the blood out of the animal that was being sacrificed, it was used for medicinal purposes, to heal wounds. It was, it was understood that it, it had something to, to, that was necessary for it to be included in our diet because it was necessary for the chemistry of our bodies. In fact, if you've, oh goodness, if you have at all dug into nutrition today, lots of people are coming right back around and saying all the things that we've been told for years not to do and not to eat, you should be doing those and eating them to include salt. But make sure it's the right kind of salt. And so, so they had an understanding of that. It was, it was used to kill weeds on a road. There, there is, it was so many numbers of uses. It was used as a monetary um, uh, currency. When, when people would make trade, it could be used in trade. It was used in making covenants. There is all kinds of uses. And so to come to this and to know the very one who is saying it has a complete understanding of that. Why? Because it was through him that all things were made. And apart from him, there's nothing that was made that is, is here that was done apart from him. John chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. And so he says, you, and he's speaking to his, 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 his listeners here, and he says, you're the salt of the earth. And so what happens here is our tendency is to reduce this down to one or two of those things, and I don't think we can do that. I think we have to encompass all of that. But we also have to keep in mind, too, that the majority of his listeners would not have been temple workers. And so there's things that, that maybe they, they would have immediately gone to, whereas if you're a temple worker, you might go to the sacrifices or things like that. And so, so he's speaking to maybe more Common, more average people, non-temple workers. And so maybe they're going to some of those more common uses, preserving, um, putting on the ground for weeds, bartering, things like that. 
He says, you're the salt of the earth. All right? We're going to come back to that. Earth. I mentioned to you last week when he talked about earth, they shall inherit the earth. Um, in, the, in, the, in the Greek, the word that's behind that, it can be translated either earth or land, and context matters. And so I took you back to some, some Old Testament places in the Psalms, particularly like Psalm 37, where what Jesus was doing in the Beatitudes is he was pulling on some of those Old Testament references so that he can show us what it looks like, what a person who inherits the kingdom looks like, what a person who values the same things as the Messiah values. And so he's quoting those. And so the, the place where he says, they shall inherit the earth in Matthew, as it's translated for us, in Psalm 37, it says, they shall inherit the land. Emphasis on land. Well, when you put that in a Hebrew context, land has a very specific meaning. It has a very specific context. Land is the land that God gave to his people through a covenant. And so when, when he would say, you shall, the meek shall inherit the, 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 the earth or the land, he had a very specific understanding because they had some specific promises. And I'm, I'm telling you the same thing comes into play here because when we read salt of the earth, we think immediately the entirety of the earth. We think immediately the entirety of the earth. But when we have an understanding that his listeners likely would have heard him in Hebrew speaking, and he likely would have said land, Eretz, the Hebrew word for land, they would have had then an immediate context understanding of their land. And so then when you think about that, you're the salt of the land. In other words, you have, he's speaking to his listeners, to, to the people who are in covenant with Yahweh, their God. You are the salt of this land. You have the possibility, the potential to be a positive influence on this land. Preservation, medicinal healing, all the different things we just went through. You're the salt. You're what salt does. You do it in this land, okay? But if salt has lost its taste, now, I, I had to clarify what kind of salt we're talking about because as far as I can find and tell, and, and through my experience with real kinds of salt, salt doesn't lose its taste, right? You, you might have something where, where if, if the salt's mixed with other minerals, maybe the salt part gets washed away and then you're left with other minerals, but that doesn't mean the salt has lost its taste. And, and the reason I'm bringing this up is because this is a hard, a hard phrase to translate. And so English translators, they just have to try to make sense of it in context. And so when you see lost its taste, that's an acceptable translation. But let me tell you, when you find a word in any of the, the languages, Greek or Hebrew, you can find all of this, by the way. This is not secret, special knowledge. You can go to blueletterbible.org, and you can look up this verse, go to interlinear, click on the verse, click on interlinear, and then you can see every word in English and in Greek. And you can see what the Greek word is behind it and what the English word is, is being translated. Same for Hebrew, and then you can drill down on it and start to get definitions. Okay? You can do all of that. The first and primary use of the word that we see translated as taste is worthless. That's the translation, worthless. And then translators go, well, and there might be some context where it could also be tasteless. Now, Jesus is speaking in Hebrew. We've got a translation here in Greek. We have to understand that sometimes words can mean more than one thing, right? Even in our language today, I can say something like living salty, and I can mean a couple of different things, right? 
depending on the context. And depending on the context, I may intend for you to get one understanding while at the same time reading beneath it and saying there's another understanding, right? That's how language works. Okay, so when he says, if that salt loses its taste, and we consider that his example is salt, and salt losing its taste. Now, salt doesn't necessarily lose its taste, but what he's likely referring to is salt that is no longer able to be used for the intended purposes of its use. It becomes worthless, right? When salt can no longer be used for its intended purpose, it becomes worthless, or in in this translation, it loses its taste. Now, I've told you, because this is a Hebrew context, and that's important, this is a Hebrew context, this is Hebrew listeners, Jesus would have been teaching likely in Hebrew, and Matthew wrote this, and Matthew is thoroughly Hebrew. We have to understand how Hebrew people thought at this time, okay? And I've told you that when rabbis, which are teachers of the, the, uh, the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, when rabbis would teach and they would try to interpret things, they have certain ways that they would teach or write and interpret. There's differing levels. And I told you that the first level is called the pashat, right? The simple, plain meaning. What does it mean on the surface? The simple, plain meaning. He's given an example of salt of the land of the earth and salt losing its taste. The pashat, the simple meaning here is salt can come and can reach a point where it's no longer useful for its intended purpose. Salt can become tasteless in that sense. It becomes worthless. That's the simple, plain meaning. I told you the next level that they would look for is the remez, which is there's a hint behind the language. Right? And so it's, I'm saying this on the surface, but then I've got hints that point you to something else. Okay? This is all going to come together in just a moment if it's not yet. The salt of the earth, he's talking to the people. He's given a specific physical example of salt coming from the earth, from the land. You're the salt. The things that salt does for the land, you can do. But if salt loses its taste, it loses its ability to be used for its intended purposes, how shall its saltiness be restored? And the answer, it's an implied no, it can't. It cannot be restored. When salt loses its intended purpose, it cannot be restored. Let me give you an example. When, when they would use salt to draw blood out of the sacrifices, that salt would still be there, but they needed to dispose of it because you can't use that salt for other things now. You can't use that salt to preserve meat. You can't use that salt to season your food. You can't use that salt for anything except throwing it on the road to maintain weed control. When another country, there's a a place, I believe it's in 2 Kings, uh, verse chapter 20, maybe somewhere around there. I, I, I didn't put that to memory. Um, but 2 Kings, there's, a, there's a, jo- a king named Abimelech. He comes and he overthrows the people of Israel in that time. And as part of his, his conquering the people, they threw salt on the fields. Why? To stop the crops from growing to stunt the growth. It was, it was an act of judgment upon the people. Salt can be used for weed control and to stop some things from growing. And so when he says, how can it restore its saltiness? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. 
Now you have the picture. When salt has been used for a purpose and it cannot be used for anything else because it has become worthless, the only thing it's good for is to be thrown upon the road in order to maintain that road so weeds don't grow, which means it gets trampled on under people's feet. Now you have the imagery. What does he mean? He's speaking to people who are mostly Hebrew, mostly Israelites by birth, and they were in a covenant with Yahweh their God. And under that covenant, as we went through the book of Deuteronomy, we saw when you get into the land, if you will obey my covenant, you will receive blessings in the land. There will be peace from your enemies. Your crops will grow. You will receive rain when you need it. Your animals will multiply. Your women will have babies. All the things that came with it, you will be free from sicknesses and diseases like you saw in Egypt. But if you violate, if you disobey my covenant while you are in the land, then there are curses that guard that covenant, and you will come under those things. What Jesus is saying to his followers, I think based on my understanding of this at the time, is he's speaking to people who are in covenant with Yahweh their God. And he's saying to them, you are the salt that preserves this land, protects this land, feeds this land, does things that have a positive influence on this land. Land is a big deal. And then there are things that if you do it, the land gets cursed, right? The way you live your life, he's saying to them, impacts this land. Now, if the people under God's covenant were to live their life according to God's ways and obedience to him, they would be the positive influence on the land that salt is. And then if they did that according to God's plan, I'm going to come back around to this in a minute, according to God's plan, the people of Israel, he never intended them to just stay isolated. They were instead to, to be the salt of the earth, salt of the land, and as they were the salt of land, then they would also be extending the reign and rule of God as the other nations would be drawn in, and then they would become the salt of the entire earth, okay? Salt of the land, pashat, simple, plain meaning. You are able to have a positive influence on this land if you will live in accordance with God's ways, and if you do that, then you will also then become the salt of the earth. The word can mean land or earth. So again, one level, plain sense. Second level, hint. Does that make sense? Okay, so he's saying that to them. And he's, he's basically calling these people, hey, you've got a covenant. And you are the salt. You can have a positive influence. But if you have become worthless, how do you become worthless? You fail to live according to God's ways. You fail to live your life in alignment with God's instructions. You have become worthless. You have become useless. You are no longer able to serve your intended purpose. God had an intended purpose for the people of Israel. It was, it was not just him selecting a few favorite people of his own. He was not trying to do that and then just work with them. His, his intention is for the entirety of all of creation. But when all of creation was rejecting him, Tower of Babel, Genesis 11, and Deuteronomy 32, verses 8 and 9, he scatters them, and then he selects for himself one man, Abram, and through him he creates a nation of people, a group of people who had not existed up to that point. He formed them 
for his glory. Okay? And when they live in accordance with his intended purpose, the intent was they become the salt in this land and then also the salt for the earth. Okay, let's keep going. Because he goes on. But they have become worthless up to that point. Let me just emphasize that. They had become worthless because they had not been living in accordance with God's ways. They were under judgment because Rome was ruling over them. That was a sign that they were under judgment. The curses that guard the covenant, one of them was you will be ruled by a people that is not your own. All right. You also are the light of the world. The city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Okay, you, you get that imagery. You can see that. You can picture that. Nor do people light a lamp and put it in their basket. You get that. But instead, they put it on stand and it gives light to all the house. You get his point here. I know you do. In the same way, he's saying, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify, uh, bring glory to your Father who is in heaven. You get the imagery. That one's a lot easier to understand. But let me show you where it's rooted. Let's start with Isaiah 49. I'm about to give you a lot of Old Testament verses. You can write them down. You can snap pictures or go back and watch the video because this will all be there. Isaiah 49, verse 1. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. Those are references to non-Jewish people, Gentiles. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, and he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow in his quiver. He hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel. Okay, so we're talking about the group of people that God formed called Israel, whom he made a covenant with. And he said to him, you are my servant, Israel. Israel was intended to be a servant of the most high God for his purposes in whom I will be glorified. We keep reading. Verse four, but I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity, yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob, that's a reference to Israel, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. So we've got a reference to the people of Israel who had been scattered at this point, being gathered back. Look at verse six. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob. Again, a reference to the tribes of Israel, the tribes of Jacob, and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. God has always intended that salvation would not be just limited to one classification of people, one ethnicity. It has always been intended that it would go forth to all the nations. His intended purpose with the people Israel was that they would then be the light to all the other nations. That they would be uh, in context of living in relationship with Yahweh their God the other nations would see it and they would consider their relationship with their gods, little g, and they would then be drawn in to worship the one true living God. The intended purpose, how Israel brings glory to, to their God is that they would be a light for the nations. So when Jesus says, you are a city set on a hill, you are the light of the world, he's drawing on things like this as he's speaking to these people. You're supposed to be drawing people in. 
Okay, but let's keep going. This is Isaiah chapter 2. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord, okay, that would be Jerusalem because Jerusalem is on an elevated plateau, a mountain. The mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, most prominent, and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. So you've got non-Jewish people, other nations coming to the house of God, the temple, the tabernacle, right? And they're coming and they say, let us learn his ways. Let them teach us his ways. Let us walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law or the Torah and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, reference to Israel, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nobody who lights a lamp puts a bucket over it, but instead they set it on a stand so that it might give forth light. This is Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 5. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as Yahweh my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, other nations, who when they hear all these statutes will say, Surely this great nation, Israel, is a wise and understanding people. The intent of, 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 of the people of Israel receiving the instruction of God was that they would live it out in faithful obedience to their God. And all the other nations who had been in rebellion against the one true God and were following these other gods, little g, would see the instructions given to the people of Israel they would see the way that the people of Israel relate to their God and the way that the God, the God of Israel relates to them, and they would say, surely this is wisdom. Surely this is wisdom and understanding, and they would then be drawn in to the one true God. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. God never intended his people who are in covenant with him to live private lives isolated from everyone else. He intended them to be faithfully obedient in the, in the relationship with him so that then that gets put on display for everyone who's in rebellion against the one true God to see it as wisdom and be drawn in. His intended purpose for his people who he made covenant with was that they would go forth and that they would be the ones who would, who would bring the instruction to these other nations that they might be drawn back in. Keeping and going in Deuteronomy 5, verse 7, for what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as, the, as Yahweh our God is to us? Whenever we call upon him, and what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law or Torah that I set before you today? Do you see the intent in God giving his people his instructions? 
It was to be seen as wisdom and understanding and righteousness. And other nations would see that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was near to his people. Unlike their gods, who every other god, little g, the understanding was we need to feed them. That's why we offer sacrifices. We better season it right. We need to entertain them. And that's the, that's the, the purpose we serve. And when they see the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the people of Israel interacting with their God, they go, our God's not near like that. Wisdom. All right. So you are the salt of the earth. The point here is this, before I go any further. The salt, the salt of the earth, you have an opportunity, the people of Israel, you have an opportunity to be a positive influence on this land in all the ways that salt is. As you live in faithful obedience to the covenant of your God. And then as you are faithful and you are salt to the land, then that will expand and you will become salt to the entirety of the earth. And then you are a light set on a hill. You are meant to be seen in how you live out your relationship with your God. Okay? All right. Now you say, well, okay, that's, that's Israel. What do I do with that? Israel was never simply just an ethnic nation. It was that. It is that. It was never simply that. Israel is more a theological construct. It is a group of people, yes, many of them ethnically defined, but who are in covenant with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay, now watch this. Romans chapter 11. We, we covered this when we went through Romans a couple years ago. If some of the branches were broken off, okay, we, we've been, Paul's been talking about ethnic Jewish people and non-Jewish people, Gentiles. So if some of the branches were broken off, he's talking about ethnic Jewish people who failed to see Jesus as their Messiah and re- repent and turn to him by faith. And you, although a wild olive shoot, the wild olive shoot would be non-Jewish people. So we've got branches that were broken off, non-believing ethnic Jews, wild olive shoots, believing Gentiles, non-Jewish peoples, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. The olive tree is Israel. And he's saying there are people that are not ethnically Israel who are being grafted in. They're a wild olive branch, but they're being grafted into that which has been cultivated by, by God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are being brought into something that he was already doing. And other branches, though they're ethnic Israel, have been cut off. Okay? So we're grafted in. Do not be arrogant, verse 18, toward the branches. Don't be arrogant towards the ethnic Jews. If you are, remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root, the root being ethnic Jews, the root being uh, the root that supports you. You're being grafted in. Another way we might say that today is don't bite the hand that feeds you. Don't kick a gift horse in the mouth, right? Okay. All right. If you are, remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you, verse 19. Then you will say, well, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, but fear. Verse 21, Romans 11, keep going. For if God did not spare the natural branches, ethnic Jews who failed to believe in the Messiah, Jesus, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. 
Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, they can be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree, you weren't originally part of this this this. Uh, this, this people group, Israel, this construct that he's describing, and you were grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? We spent a lot of time on that when we went into in, in depth in Romans, but what I'm trying to point out to you there is we are not unrelated to Israel because as believers in Jesus, the Messiah, we get brought into Israel. But Israel's not simply just an ethnic nation of people. It is that, but it's more than that. It's a theological construct that includes everyone then who comes to faith in the Messiah and is part of the covenant of God. Now, let me keep going, because this is Romans chapter 9, verse 6. So I'm walking backwards here. It is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who descended from Israel, we're talking about ethnic Jews, belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But it says, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh, ethnic Jews, who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So an ethnic Jew who would claim, simply because my lineage can be traced back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Paul's saying, that alone doesn't make you true Israel. Because not all Israel is Israel. He would say, but the children of the promise, and he's going to define that as those who, who come to faith in the Messiah. Those are Israel. All right, let's keep going. Galatians chapter 3, verse 7 and 9. Know then that it is not those of faith who are the sons of, his, uh, of Abraham. Know then that it is not, it is, I'm, let me read that again, that's important, I messed that up. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. If you have come to faith in Jesus the Messiah, you are coming under the covenant made with Abraham. You are receiving the blessing of Abraham. In many other places in the scriptures, do a search on this, you are receiving the promise that comes with this blessing, and that is the Spirit of God. Okay? All right. Ephesians chapter 2, I think this is my last one. Therefore, remember that at one time you, Gentiles in the flesh, Gentiles would be non-Jewish according to ethnicity, you, the Gentiles in the flesh, often called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, Okay? So you Gentiles, uncircumcision is another reference to Gentiles. Circumcision is a reference to Jews. You're called the uncircumcision by what's called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you are at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, Gentiles, uncircumcision, those who were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, you who were once for, far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So when we talk about instruction that's being given to these Hebrew people in the Sermon on the Mount and you hear Jesus say, you're the salt of the land and you're the light of the world, don't step away from that and say that's just for ethnic Jews who believe in the Messiah. 
That is for anyone who comes into the promise of Abraham. Everyone who comes into the promise of Abraham, you are part of Israel. Okay? And Israel is not simply a, an ethnic nation. It is that, but it's not simply that. It goes beyond that. Does that make sense? All right. So then I would say then to you, living salty lives, lives that are in faithful obedience to the one true living God, lives that are being lived according to their intended purpose by God, living salty lives is what makes you and me, believers in Jesus, light to the world. If you and I do not live lives in faithful obedience to our God, and we don't align ourselves with his ways, even if it confronts us in how we want to live, if we don't align ourselves with his ways, then we become worthless in the sense that we are not being able to be used for our intended purpose. And therefore, we will not be a light to the world. We will be a light that's being hidden under a bucket, and it will be snuffed out. So, Father, would you let your spirit now come and take what's been said that is true and let us hear that. Let it sink into fertile soil of our hearts. And if there's anything that I have taught that is incorrect, block our ears from it, that it might not lead us astray. And teach us what it looks like. Each one in this room, what does it look like to live a life that is salty, and in obedience to you and your ways and guide us into truth. For others in this room today, God, I pray that you would draw them to you if they have not yet come to Jesus by faith, trusting in him for their salvation, that you would open eyes today to see that this is a God who is near to his people. This is a God who makes himself known to his people and then teaches us how to live in relationship with him that we might experience life and life abundantly. That they might then come and trust in the one you sent to take our place, to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That they might repent of whatever it is they're trusting in Turn from that, and in turning away from that, turn in faith to you. Deepen our roots. I know I'm a little over, but before we dismiss, we're still going to have people available to pray. And so if you would like prayer about anything today, whether that is prayer about things going on in your life, prayer about things that are going on in general, if you have sicknesses, disease, or things that you would like somebody to pray for healing for you on, If you have questions about what it looks like to trust in the gospel, to believe in Jesus, these are folks that are ready and available to visit and pray with you. Just come and let them know what we're praying for. You guys can go ahead and make your way up front. Now may Yahweh our God bless you and keep you. May Yahweh the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May Yahweh the Lord lift up his face toward you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.